I'm Rick Ganley. This is Writers on a New England Stage, a partnership between NHPR and the Music Hall in Portsmouth. Writers on a New England Stage brings acclaimed authors to the Granite State to discuss their lives and recent works. And late last year, I spoke at length with best-selling author and New Hampshire native John Irving about his latest novel, The Last Chairlift. This conversation was recorded in October 2022 before a remote audience. You've written novels and short stories set in so many places around the world, but you often come back to New Hampshire and New England, where this 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 book has one setting. I, I know it was your first home, having grown up in Exeter, uh, but are there other reasons that you often come back to this region in your in your novels? I like to return to uh, something that is autobiographically familiar, uh, not only to me, but I think increasingly uh, to many of my readers. Uh, not only the town of Exeter, uh, often by another name in this novel, by the name of Exeter, uh, but the school and the other conscious repetition is that there often is in my family saga novels the repetition of a familiar premise, an elusive, evasive mother, an unborn or missing biological father, uh, some mystery concerning thereof. But in each of those stories, uh, I changed the formula. The nature of that mother is different. Um, the nature of that missing father is, is different. The middle of the story and the end of the story uh, is the least autobiographical of all, um, the premise stays the same, but the tableau of the family and what happens to that family uh, is notably different every time. Um, what stays the same in all the novels, including this, my longest one, this is my longest novel, longer than Roby Dick, even longer than Bleak House. Not as long as David Copperfield, surely. <laughs> I also believe that this novel is the best demonstration of a foreshadowed ending. I think this novel is the best demonstration of a meticulously set up ending. The clues are there. And writing as there. Yeah, and writing toward an ending. I always write ending-driven novels. You always start with the ending premise. You always know you're working backwards. Yes, I do. And, and when I feel most comfortable, often the motivating reason for choosing which novel to write next, for many years I did that solely on the basis of how much I knew about the ending. Always a last sentence. Even better is when you have two or three last sentences that would work equally well, as I did in the case of The Last Cherub. Along with that, the more titles I have, the better. I love it when I have a, a choice in titles, when I have more than one title I'm thinking of. I hate it when I'm stuck with what I think of as a working title, a title I hope will change. I hope I'm going to find a better one. That has happened only rarely, but we'll hate it when it happens. And I feel less precarious with a novel that's got a couple of title options. 
Um, there's something like three or four. So you want to key us in on what they might have been? You know, that's that's a part of that's a part of how much you know about an ending. If you have title options, you feel pretty good. You, you, you said this is like a lot of your novels and stories. There, it's an autobiographical beginning and, and end. And what happens in the middle isn't necessarily so. But is this the most autobiographical of your novels? Would you say? No, not necessarily. No. Um, I mean, there are similarities. Each of my, you know, they, each of my novels, each of my novels that is about a writer is, of course, going to seem additionally autobiographical. Uh, the novels about writers are referential often to my writing. Uh, I hope I do that for the fun of my readers, not for their irritation. Um, and if I do it in a way that irritates my reviewers, I don't care. <laughs> but um, it's, it's my readers. I, I hope appreciate that. With your level of success and, and your longevity, do you have to worry about what a critic says? Does that still matter to you? Worry isn't the same as hatred. If you care about what you do, yeah. you, you, you ought to hate a trivializing, condescending review. You ought to hate what someone has said in a couple of thousand words that you've been working on for five or six or seven years. If you don't feel... Um, an animosity in return or something dead in you. Later in the book, the, your narrator Adam, as you said, is a writer, and this this takes you through this takes this 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 book takes you through his, much of his life, if not most of it. The narrator talks about becoming a later in life father, um, and he says loving a child means means living with the fear of losing a child. Quote: Writing as catharsis doesn't work. It's bad therapy. It's bad writing. Nothing purges the fear of losing a child. It's why nightmares are recurrent. You don't choose your nightmares, they choose you. Now, I think any parent can relate to that. I mean, it's a universal thing. I, I know parents uh, can relate to that. And in my case, as I know you know, um, I'm not only an ending-driven novelist, I'm a worst-case scenario guy. Um, I, I, I think of my job as a writer as twofold, perversely. It's my job to create characters the reader will love. Because it's only if you love a character that you're afraid what might happen to them. And if you don't care about the character, you won't care uh, what happens to that character. But I think my readers know me well enough now to know that um, my job is to create characters you love and to make you save for them. And that element, fear for character, fear of losing someone you love, that's another contributing factor to the length of this novel. When what's waiting at the end of the novel is the loss of someone I hope my reader will love, or more than one person, I hope my reader will love. I feel resigned to the first-person narrator. Why? Because if the objective of the novel emotionally 
is to make the reader feel it on the Uwu's character you love. The reader's going to feel it more if they're in the point of view of another character who loves that person the most. When I say resign to the first person, I'm admitting I'm very reluctant to choose it. But in the case of how emotional I want the impact of the ending to be, you got to do it. Because of what happens to Owen Meany, a peripheral Owen Meany needs to have a first-person narrator. Because of what will happen to loved ones in the last chairlift, it needs to have a first-person narrator. Here's why I hate it. Any long novel is going to get longer. Any story you tell in the first person is going to be longer than anything you could write in the third person omniscient voice. Why? Why? Because you're in the narrator's because head. Be, be, because you have to account for how that narrator knows what he or she knows. There's a lot more explaining. There's a lot more exposition. It's going to slow you down. But the payoff is the emotional impact at the end. And I believe, in addition to this being the best or the most foreshadowed of my endings, I believe this ending is one of my most emotional endings, too. Well, with a longer novel as well, and being immersed in a narrator's thoughts, um, again, you're being so immersed in the story, and as you said, you take on uh, the, the, the love that character has for other characters. Is there, is there a favorite character that you have in this book that you are particularly endeared to? Is it the narrator? Is it Adam? Oh, no. Adam least of all. Um, uh, Adam is the slowest one in his family. He's the last to learn everything. Um, he's the one that always has to be brought along. Um, Adam has a very loving family. And they are established in Act One of, of of this novel. They're very loving, but they're also very precarious. Adam is the only straight guy in his extended family who are all queer. His older cousin Nora and her girlfriend included in that extended family, but principally, most of all, his mother, and her lesbian girlfriend, and the little guy, the, the good stepfather, that his mother marries. Well, looks in the beginning like he might be a gay brother, but who turns out to transition to female. Adam's good stepfather, uh, is a trans woman. Well, readers will be familiar with good stepfather. I have a good stepfather, and all the stepfathers in my novels are, are good guys. Uh, I think the stepfather in The Last Chairlift is the best stepfather of all of them. And what I like best about him is the trans woman part. Uh, it's not for no reason. We won't give it away because that's down too much of the story. It's not for no reason that Elliot Barlow um, 
the trans woman stepfather, will be called the only hero. Um, uh, that's intentional on my part. Um, I have a trans daughter. I was writing a trans woman hero for her, for my daughter, Evil, who is my... But of course, you've written um, a, a, about trans characters long before anybody else really in mainstream uh, novel writing, I think, was doing that. You think about Garp. What draws you in particular? I, I, ironically, when I created Rabona Baldoon in the world according to Garp, um, Eva wasn't even born. Um, yeah. Uh, my, my sympathies have always been with uh, the LGBT uh, community, um, uh, even more so now. Look at the purposely punitive legislation being passed in so many Republican states um, that is by nature not only anti-abortion, but anti-LGBTQ. Look at the states that are banning books in libraries and schools. To what purpose? To ban books on the LGBTQ subject? To keep material on the LBT, LBGQ2 subject away from young gay, lesbian, and trans kids? To what end? So that they're going to feel more isolated and alone than they already feel? Um, it, that cruelty is not unprecedented in American politics, but it is cruelty. Two principal it is willfully the Republicans. Willfully and the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church struck me as dismal. Look what the U.S. Supreme Court did in overturning Roe versus Wade. Look what those Republican justices did. All but one of them is Catholic. The one who isn't Catholic was raised Catholic. He is an Episcopalian now, but he was raised Catholic. And his mother, a staunch anti-abortion activist, worked in the Reagan administration. What those Republican justices did, justices did in overturning law, is more in step with the Vatican than it is with the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, the part that says, make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Those justices have made such a law. They are endorsing a papal definition of the right to love. You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage. I'm Rick Ganley, talking with acclaimed novelist John Irving, author of A Prayer for Owen Meany, The World According to Garp, and more recently, The Last Chairlift. We'll be back in a moment with more Writers on a New England Stage, a partnership between the Music Hall in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and NHPR. Don't go away. So it was a deliberate decision on your part to to have nearly every other character outside of Adam, the narrator, um, be a queer character with Adam being the only straight man. And as you said, um, I think at one point in the book, his mother says to him, you're the, you're the weird one, sweetie. Well, she's wrong, isn't she? Yeah. Um, I, 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 I think... Um... Uh, I think that point is 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 all driven home. Uh, 
uh, so to speak. Not only is Adam the slowest learner, um, the last one to catch on um, to biblically, the one who is behind, but is it really a surprise that the most badly behaved character in this family sexually is the straight guy? Is that really going to surprise anyone? <laughs> I'm, I'm not touching that. I'm not, I'm not going to touch that. <laughs> I want to ask you something else about <laughs> the writing process. Somebody's going to isolate that. I know it. I want, I want to ask you about this. At that point, that's still changing the subject, you know. Part of my job. Just um, at, at one point, Adam is talking about his relationship with M, uh, another writer. Um, he, he reconnects with her through writing. He says there was a newfound intimacy between them because as writers, they were discontented in the same way. You write discontent is one thing that writers have in common. When you write fiction, you go it alone. As a writer, do you feel apart from, from, from society in some way? Do you feel you are alone? I think one of my, I think one of the reasons I identify with um, outsiders, with people who either are minorities um, and sexual minorities or they're treated as such, I think one of my reasons for identifying with um, and sexual minorities is that all writers, especially fiction writers, we are outsiders. We are first and foremost observers. And sometimes you're always less of a participant. Now, of my 15 novels, not all of them are what I would call political. Not all of them are novels that demonstrate a social conscience or are politically or polemically on one side of a political issue or the other. But by my count, more than half of them, slightly more than half of them are. I would say seven or eight of the 15 novels are what I would call uh, political. We keep quarrel about the, the fine-tuning of those numbers, but it's at least half. I think it's a little more than half. And if you look closely at the novels, the latter half of my novels, the later half of my novels, uh, are more political than uh, the first half. Why? I suppose, like Adam, I was a slow learner too. Um, I it took me a while to notice him off um, politically to be political. Look how many years after the how many. Look how many years after the Vietnam War it was before I wrote my Vietnam novel. It took me a while to live with all the things I hated about that period of time. But that comes with age, though, doesn't it? That and comes... Let it, and, and let enough time pass mm -hmm. so, that, so that I knew the difference between the things I would always hate and those things I could, after a decade, let go. Um, I often approach politics in history from that vantage of having little distance. You have to have experience to process, the time to process that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, you do. 
I want, I've got some um, some some viewer questions here. John, uh, do you miss your characters when the novel is finished? I know I still think about characters like Owen Meany and others. Do, do those characters live on for you? It is certainly my hope that those characters live on for you, my my reader. Uh, it is certainly my hope that you'll go on missing them or think of them as as you would of the people you do miss. Um, now, I hope that happens. But I'm something of a, of a workaholic. Uh, um, by the time I'm doing what I'm doing now, talking about writing instead of doing it, by the time I'm promoting or talking about a new book, I already started another one. I only have this case on five or six chapters until what the next one will be. I like to, um, in that interim of time between finishing uh, the final ed edited copy uh, of the novel I've written and before pop date, I like to get a jump into the next one so that after this period of interruption is, is over, I have something to fall back on. So, in truth, I don't keep thinking about on own. I hope you will, as I hope you will keep thinking about on um, Ray and um, Mullen and the social Um I think you will. I think so, and I think they, they will kind of percolate in the back of the mind for a while, and they come up at different times. Um, in the days ahead for me. I, I want to know, you know, without giving too much away, if you could talk a little bit about, there are ghosts here, as there have been before. Some characters see them in The Last Chairlift, some don't. What's the relation between secrets and ghosts in this novel? That's a good question. Uh, and I think I have to begin by saying, speaking as a, as a non-religious person, Ghosts are as far as I can credibly imagine the so-called spiritual world. Um, and I can believe in ghosts. Have I personally experienced a ghost sighting? No. Um, I made a special trip uh, after I finished the first draft of the novel. Uh, I went back to the Hotel Chiron. Um, yes, to spend time in Aspen, more time with the wonderful archives at the Aspen Historical Society. I've also to give myself one more chance um, in that hotel with a history of ghosts. Um, I'll actually see one myself. It didn't happen. I took my assistant with her, with me, and it happened to her. And did it? She had a ghost in her bathroom in the middle of the night and never called. Um, well, I don't blame her for that, but what's she going to do? Come see my ghost? Um, it's two o'clock in the morning. Uh, Those two o'clock in the morning calls are probably never a good idea. No, I think that's true. Um, to come back to the title and to build on the theme of a ghost, um, if I were a better businessman and I were writing novels for the money, this novel is long enough to have been three novels. It's three times longer than most novels that are published. 
it, it, it certainly has enough titles. The, the first novel of the trilogy would be the uh, title of Act One, Early Signs. Well, not that first of the ghosts, of course, Early Signs of Zen, first appearances thereof. Not too many, but some, right? It's a beginning. But also, the early signs are the introduction of all those beloved family members in Adam's family who he's already afraid for. He already loves them so much, he's starting to be afraid for them. It's early signs about them as well. What's the title of Act Two? Could have been the title of the second book in the trilogy. Um, could have been the title of the novel as a whole. Honeymoon on the Cliff. There, I was speaking of the Aspen portion, uh, portions of the novel, that setting. There are two long portions of this novel that are written in the form of a screenplay. Um, what made you want to give us Adam's, you know, his unmade movie version of the events that happened at, at the at the Hotel Jerome? I had a wonderful editor. I have a wonderful editor now. I had a wonderful editor for the last chairlift. Um, I had a distant wonderful editor when I was writing The World According to Bark. Um, uh, I was doing my best uh, to live with the fact that, I, I was trying to live with the fact that I was afraid that the examples I gave of Garp's writing in the novel would distract the reader from the story of Garp's life. They would stop the reader and make the reader read Garp's writing uh, and I was afraid of that interruption. And when I mentioned this to my editor, he said, you can't write a book about a writer and not show us how he or she does it. So just do it and don't whine about it. Well, it was a good lesson, you know. He he, he was right. And um, so I kept that in mind. I can't write a, a book about a screenwriter or not give you evidence that Adam knows how to pull the trigger. Furthermore, as you know, once again, let's not give too much away. And as as you know, um, because of what happens late in the novel, in the screenplay chapter, the Lowish Peak uh, chapter, it's also my intention uh, to demonstrate not only that this is an example of what Adam is always talking about. One of a screenplay that's an unmade movie never goes away. That's the theme with him. If you write a movie and it never gets made as a movie, it stays with you. You keep thinking about it and you will keep writing it, even though you know its chances of being made are nil. Okay? Well, not only did I have to give an example of that, but I further wanted to demonstrate to the reader why Adam's screenplay never should be made. <laughs> right? <laughs> so I had fun with that. I had fun setting up that sort of painting. I, I like painting my characters into a corner. Um, there's nowhere to go. Um, when, when you do that, you've, you, you've got them caught. You've got them exposed. Um, so that was important. But... There was another factor behind me, um, putting the effort I put into writing that screenplay chapter that, that meant a lot to me. 
I knew this was going to be the last screenwriting I did. Um, I don't want to do it anymore. Um, I'm, I, I've done, I, I've done it well. I learned how to do it. It's a trick I enjoyed. It's a trick I like. Not in my time remaining. I want to keep writing novels. Uh, and just before I began this novel, I began this novel in December of 2016. I'd spent a year writing five episodes of the TV series in development of the world according to Barb. I wrote these episodes as bookends uh, to serve whoever the head writer would be. There are several other of my novels in adaptation, both as television series and as feature films. I'm helping out. I'm being a reader when someone asks me to. I'll read somebody else's script and say, try this, try that, maybe this, maybe that. Um, but I don't want to do it anymore myself. So for that reason, the Loge Peak chapter um, in the last show that might have been a way to give the process that kind of found goodbye. Um, so long, been good to know you. Well, I want to ask you, I have a couple of questions towards that angle. There are some beautiful scenes in this novel of your characters having agency over their own endings. How do you feel about that? One problem with talking about a plot-driven, ending-driven novel is here we are looking at the end of the novel and how much do I want to say about that? Um, I'm not even sure if uh, using the self-assisted uh, you know, suicide phrase uh, doesn't already give too much away. Let's not say who we're talking about. You, you understand? I mean, the best way to answer that question of yours, I, I think, is, is um, I'll just say, yes. I, I don't know how to talk about it without kind of being the spoiler. I understand. Now, I won't ask you to do that. I will just say that, it, uh, that the scene I have in mind is, is, is absolutely beautifully written. Uh, Adam says in, in a you. book. Thank you. I'll know the scene. I'll know yeah. the scene. I like it too. Thank you. I just, I just felt it was, it was beautiful. Uh, Adam says that as writers, um, he and M never need to retire. You ever consider retirement at all? I mean, is, 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 uh, I think I've read somewhere that you want to be, you want to go out writing right at your desk. Um, that would, that would, that, that would certainly be my, top of my wish list. Just to go out with my, uh, head on the desk and the pen in my hand. Um, uh, it would also probably be that, um, it easiest thing uh, for my wife and daughter if they were to find me, um, you know, better than in the shower or something. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding, but I'm 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 not kidding. I don't think about retiring. I mentioned earlier that for the writing of my first four novels, I was not self-sufficient. I had a full-time other job. Well, it it from that moment I became self-sufficient. It's felt like a luxury to me that I get to do what I love every day, all day. Thanks so much for joining us for a conversation with author John Irving. I'm Rick Ganley. Coming up, we'll hear questions taken from the audience who attended this remote event, which was recorded last fall. Writers on a New England stage is a partnership between the Music Hall in Portsmouth and New Hampshire Public Radio. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back, and thanks for tuning into the special broadcast of Writers on a New England Stage, a partnership between the Music Hall in Portsmouth and NHPR. I'm Rick Gamley. We're hearing today from internationally renowned author John Irving, who I spoke with last fall about character construction, writing novels backwards from the ending, and his overall writing process with each new work. Is your process still the same? You still write all of this in longhand? Yes, and and I'll um, uh, I'll stand by the reason. My mom taught me to all type um, uh, before I was in high school. She did me a great favor. But while I started writing fiction, I could go. I went too fast on the keyboard. I would never dream of writing a letter to a friend in longhand. Or I, I love my laptop for writing emails to friends, family. I wouldn't dream of writing by hand to then. When I write a screenplay or my writing novel, writing by hand slows me down, especially because I have to write legibly enough in the early days so that what typist could understand me well enough to transcribe me. And later, and I couldn't afford it and had an assistant so that my assistant could understand me and transcribe what I've written. The slower, the slower is better. I think of writing like composing, like drawing. Slow down. What's the hurry? If you get the sentence and the concept right the first time, there's less rewriting later. And I say that with the greatest respect for rewriting. I spend a third to a half of my time writing a novel rewriting. I rewrite a lot. I love rewriting. But you can really save a step or I can, by going slowly the first time. And when my assistant gives me back a, a, a typed-up manuscript, there's another advantage. When I see it in print, when I see the type font, it's like seeing it again for the first time. Right? It's again, but it feels like the first time because I was used to reading it, rewriting it, fiddling with it, recognizing my long hand all so slowly. Now suddenly it's in print. I can read it so much more consecutively. Well, when you can read something more consecutively, you might catch something you didn't catch the first time. It's fresher. So when the first when that first print copy comes back to you, that's another advantage of having made the step between longhand and and type. And with every subsequent draft, I'm not I'm not making revisions on a keyboard either. I'm making them by hand. That's interesting. I've never heard that before, but it, it makes perfect sense. If it's something, if it looks, it's in a different font, uh, a different page, just the look of it alone can can, can give you a fresh, it's right. now, fresh also, perspective. What happens to every writer when it, it goes from your final typescript or from your, your, your final, uh, you know, whatever it looks like to you, um, you know, on their laptop, and you and you get there suddenly. You know, when when the galley pages, when the unbound galley pages come back, you're getting a fresh look in a way because the font is different, the layout is different. It's not like seeing it for the first time, but yeah, yeah, rereading by then, by then, the tenth rereading, it's a little fresher. Mm. I can't imagine. Because the physical appearance of it has changed. 
I know you've been a dual citizen with Canada and, and the U.S. now for several years, and you've lived in Canada for several years. Um, a listener has asked us about the differences about living in Canada now versus the U.S., how, how it changed your perspective. Living outside the United States has, has, has from an early age, had a, had a great influence on me. Um, from my first year abroad, uh, as, a, as a junior in, in college, my junior year abroad at the uh, University of New Hampshire, I went to Vienna. Well, I ended back. I ended back in Vienna. Ended up back in Vienna uh, when my uh, first novel was sent. Um, the movie rights were bought, and I went to work um, uh, with the director, was in Christian, uh, for two years in Vienna. Most of that time, or or much of that time, in the in the Vienna War Archive, um, studying through the bears was the historical novel. We had to be there. Um, my second son was born in Vienna. You see your country better or differently. You learn more, maybe, about the country you've left behind. So that that knowledge, fear knowledge, it was in that head for a long time. I met my wife, Janet, um, uh, when I came to Canada to promote the Cider House Rule. Janet was the Canadian publisher of the Cider House Rule. Now, we've known each other that long. We've been together that long. And uh, so I'm, I've been living as long as three months of the year, two or four months of the year, in Canada for more than 30 years. Uh, I didn't become a permanent resident uh, of Canada until 2014. I didn't become a, a Canadian citizen until 2019. You can bet I kept my U.S. citizenship um, because there's never been a more important time um, uh, in um, my political life or my politically conscious life uh, as an American. There's never been a more important time to vote. Uh, I don't want to give that up. So I'm I'm happy and proud of my dual citizenship. And you were, were you coming from Vermont at that point, a, a rural community in Vermont? I know you lived for many years. Were you coming to Toronto from that? Yes, I am. I'm I I, I am. I'm a I'm a registered voter in Vermont, and when I vote by absentee ballot, I my vote is is cast uh, in Vermont because it's the last state in the United States I uh, lived in. So can you tell me about the process of, of working, researching, and writing in, in a very cosmopolitan, you know, metropolitan area like Toronto, as opposed to being in, you know, a rural farmhouse in Vermont? How did that change your work? Not at all. Not at all. Um, with... Um, all my children are older, and my, my grandchildren older. Um, it was a lot easier to be in touch with them uh, from Toronto, uh, an international airport, a hub. Um, it was a lot easier to get out to Colorado and California and go anywhere uh, to see them than it was when I lived in Vermont. And don't forget, I, I, I've lived in Vienna before. I've loved it. I loved living in New York plus um 
but it wasn't New York's fault that it didn't want to sell without living there. Um, I wasn't crazy about uh, my own circumstances at the time I was there, but I I lived on uh, not a full decade, but um, eight years in New York, so I had some fondness for uh, city love. And, um, yes, I, I, I've lived in uh, some ski towns um, uh, other than in Vermont, I, I lived in a couple of ski towns in Austria too. Um, uh, I liked very much um, the life I had in Vermont. I just liked it most of all when uh, the kids were around me and when they came home from school and we had a big house and they brought their friends from school with them. And uh, well, when everybody grew up and started having their own lives elsewhere, uh, Jet and I looked at each other and and thought, well, we might have a little more fun if we went back to Toronto, oh, or we might uh, have a few more restaurants to go out to and a few more people to see and um, stuff like that. Not to mention it would be easier to get anywhere from there uh, and get back to Toronto than it was to get anywhere from um uh, southern Vermont and back to it. Um, sure. A lot of my life as a writer is in translation. I'm published in uh, 35 or more other languages. I don't go to all of those translation countries, but um, uh, I, I go to the uh, the big ones, um, uh, or I try to. I may not this time. Um, now, uh, uh, You've you you've seen how clumsy I am with the earbuds, and I'm 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 not fully crazy about Zoom yet, but because of this way of communicating, um, it's not as essential or necessary, um, for me to go to the Netherlands and the Scandinavian countries, to go to uh, France and Germany and Spain and Italy as it used to be, um because uh, I can be there virtually too. Yeah, the technology is, is certainly enabling, although it, it certainly doesn't, it doesn't um, replace uh, in person, but, but it, it, it certainly do, does enable you to reach many more people in, in many more ways. It's a good, that's a good word, yeah. Rick. It, it, it is more enabling. It's enabling, yeah. But it, and it's, and it's also, by comparison, the live is also artificial. Absolutely. And, uh, and, and we're aware of that. You know, we're, we're aware of that even if you're young enough and smart enough to know what to do with your stupid earbuds. <laughs> Let me ask you, uh, we, uh, somebody asked about your time at Exeter. Um, uh, do you miss anything from Exeter? And do you have any, is there any particular thought you have or memory you have of, of your time in Exeter growing up? And one of my sadnesses of not being uh, in Portsmouth, um, uh, live tonight is is um, some old friends, some childhood friends, some um, and schoolboy friends. I was hoping to see. Um, I I missed them, and it would have been a, a, a fun occasion to uh, to see them. Um, uh, and you know my um. Not wonderful, always such father, because he was on all extra the faculty. Um, uh, 
not only did my mom, was my mom happier and was I happier when he came out into our, our lives? Well, I was much younger uh, in real life, so to speak. I was only um, uh, six when they were married, um, and uh, I got to go to their wedding. Um, I purposely made uh, Adam older when uh, his mom uh, uh, and uh, his uh, stepfather or Meg. What, was their wedding anything like the wedding scene? Because there are, as, there are, as you know, should we say, older things for him to see and win on the night of their wedding. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. That a, that a six-year-old would really... Okay. Like All right. Well, I don't want to give it away, but the wedding scene in Last Chairlift is um, um, quite a vivid scene. I'll say that. All from... It goes on a lot longer than most weddings, or than yep. or the most or the most weddings I've ever been to. Um, true, hmm. and uh, you know, um, yeah. Let's not give too much away. I don't want to. I don't want to. The, but... the, the problem, the problem with talking about um, my novels, especially on Bob Day one, firstly, while um, Nolan has had a chance to. Reading is um, all it is is the temptation to uh, say too much. This is one reason I do as little book reviewing as I do. In the first place, I have to absolutely love a novel before I would review it, and I don't absolutely love a lot of them. But when I do, well. What I love most about it is what happened, and especially how well they bring off the ending. And and you know, I know as a writing, you don't want the reviewer, even your good reviewers, to give away what happens at the ending. Many reviewers do, and they get hard not to if you if you're excited, and what you're mostly excited about is how it comes off. Mm-hmm. You know, absolutely. Hey, what the payoff is, but you know, I'm just going to say, I'm just going to say to to uh, gentle readers, uh, watch out for the wedding scene. That's all I'll say. Um, and in, and the wedding scene is only the end of Act One. That's right. That's right. You are a third of the way through. Yeah, you haven't seen nothing yet. <laughs> John Irving, let me ask you. Hey, there's more to life than wedding. That is true. That is very Unfortunately, true. Unfortunately, yeah. Are, are there are there questions that no one ever asks you that you wish someone would? I can't think of one. No. Um. How? But then, now that I think of it, I can't think of any question I want to ask. Um. <laughs> so, are you sick of answering um, questions? That's not well. I won't say that. Well, um, it, it always takes a while to get used to it again because a number of years pass, uh, and when when I'm not publishing a new book, uh, I make a point of uh, doing no interviews or virtually no interviews. Very few. Uh, I don't like to talk in that in the interim. I when I'm writing. Um, I, I, when people ask me for interviews, 
one on between books, that is, having published one and now writing another one. And I say, you can wait until I publish the next one. Um, and uh, find a way to interview me then. Um, and so I get out of the habit of how to talk about what you've written. And, and so um, luckily I've had a few weeks of this. So uh, believe it or not, as uh, halting or fumbling as I may seem, I'm a lot better than I was a couple of weeks ago. If it, it, I'm a little more familiar how to talk about this book. You feel warmed up. Yeah. 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 And and warm up warmed up is exactly what you have to get. Um because I've been I haven't been doing it for six or seven years. Well there's there's so and, much and there, and there were a number of my novels that took longer than six or seven years. There's so much to talk about with 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 this this book, The Last Chairlift. Um and uh you know, we don't want to give any more away, but um, certainly if, if you have, uh, listeners and, and viewers, if you have just received your copy of the book, you can dive into it and you'll have, um, you'll have several weeks of good reading, I think, with that, that nearly 900 pages. There are three, uh, full acts in there and, uh, a lot of surprises. But I think, um, John, as you said, if you look for the clues, the foreshadowing is all there. Yes. And I'll just say to both readers who are starting the book, take your time. I did. John Irving, thank you so much for the time today, tonight. We really appreciate you joining us for Writers on the New England Stage. Thank you, Ruth. I'm happy to be here. And to those of you on in the Portsmouth area that I was hoping to see personally, I'm sorry. Um, uh, I wish I were there. Thanks again. Thank you. Writers on a New England stage is a partnership between NHPR and the Music Hall in Portsmouth. The Music Hall Executive Director is Tina Sautel. New Hampshire Public Radio President and CEO is Jim Schachter. New Hampshire Public Radio Producer is Sarah Plord. The Music Hall Director of Communications and Community Engagement is Monty Bohannon. The Music Hall Literary Producer is Brittany Wasson. And I am Rick Ganley. We thank you so much for listening and watching Writers on a New England stage tonight. <laughs>